Um, if you don't have a paper copy of a Bible and you would like one, then please raise your hand and one of our host team will get to you. Uh, today's Bible reading is from Nehemiah chapter 9, verse 1 to 18. That's Nehemiah 9, chapter 1 to, Nehemiah chapter 9, verse 1 to 18. Before we begin, let me pray. Dear gracious Lord, thank you so much for your word. Thank you that in it you reveal your son Jesus. In it you reveal your character and your grace to us, Lord. Um, I pray, Lord, that you would please um, teach us in your word today. I pray for Iggy. Please help him to preach faithfully um, and humbly from your word. And I pray that you would give us ears to listen. In Jesus' name, amen. Nehemiah chapter 9, verse 1. Now on the 24th day of this month, the people of Israel were assembled with fasting and in sackcloth and with earth on their heads. And the Israelites separated themselves from all foreigners and stood and confessed their sins and the iniquities of their fathers. And they stood up in their place and read from the book of the law of the Lord of their God for a quarter of the day. For another quarter of it, they made confession and worshipped the Lord their God. On the stairs of the Levites stood Jeshua, Bani, Kadmiel, Shebaniah, Buni, Sherebiah, Bani, and Chanani, and they cried with a loud voice to the Lord their God. Then the Levites, Jeshua, Kadmiel, Bani, Shabniah, Sherebiah, Hodiah, Shebaniah, and Pathiah said, Stand up and bless the Lord your God from everlasting to everlasting. Blessed be your glorious name, which is exalted above all blessing and praise. You are the Lord, you alone. You have made heaven, the heaven of heavens, with all their hosts, the, and the earth and all that is on it, the seas and all that is in them, and you preserve all of them, and the host of heaven worships you. You are the Lord, the God who chose Abram and brought him out of Ur of the Chaldeans and gave him the name Abraham. You found his heart faithful before you and made with him the covenant to give to his offspring the land of the Canaanite, the Hittite, the Amorite, the Perizzite, the Jebusite, and the Girgashite. And you have kept your promise, for you are righteous. And you saw the affliction of our fathers in Egypt, and heard their cry at the Red Sea, and performed signs and wonders against Pharaoh and all his servants and all the people of his land. For you knew that they acted arrogantly against our fathers. And you made a name for yourself, as it is to this day. And you divided the sea before them, so that they went through the mists of the sea on dry land. And you cast their pursuers into the depths, as a stone into mighty waters. By a pillar of cloud you led them in the day, and by a pillar of fire in the night, to light for them the way in which they should go. You came down on Mount Sinai and spoke with them from heaven, and gave them right rules and true laws, good statutes and commandments. And you made known to them your holy Sabbath, and commanded them commandments and statutes and a law by Moses your servant. You gave them bread from heaven for their hunger, and brought water for them out of the rock for their thirst. And you told them to go in and to possess the land that you have sworn to give them. But they and our fathers acted presumptuously and stiffened their neck and did not obey your commandments. They refused to obey and were not mindful of the wonders that you performed among them. But they stiffened their neck and appointed a leader to return to their slavery in Egypt. But you are a God ready to forgive, gracious and merciful, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and did not forsake them. Even when they had made for themselves a golden calf and said, this is your God, 
who brought you up out of Egypt and had committed great blasphemies, you in your great mercies did not forsake them in the wilderness. This is God's word. Apologies for that. Can you guys all hear me? Okay. All right. Just let me adjust this. All right. So we're um, starting a new series today. So keep your Bibles open. Make sure you're looking into the Word um, because that's where the authority, God's authority is. And we're going to be looking into the Scriptures today. Uh, Let me start by just telling you an experience of parenting, which is, I think, universal to any parent sitting here and something to expect if you may be a parent in the future. It it could be a story that I tell of any one of my children, but I'm going to pick Maya because she's my youngest. She's the one fresh in my memory at the moment. It goes something like this. Um, A mealtime. We're all sitting around enjoying a nice meal. uh, And then Maya decides that she wants some dessert before the meal has finished. And we say to Maya, Maya... No, you have to finish your vegetables first. So what does she do? Uh, she grabs a piece of broccoli and she raises it slowly and her hand goes backwards. And we say, Maya, no, don't do it. And she looks us in the eye and she throws. Right? Do you know what that is, friends? That's rebellion. Rebellion. That's rebellion and that is human, isn't it? We all have a rebellious streak in our heart where we don't want to listen, we don't want to obey, and maybe it's more than a rebellious streak, if you actually think about it. Deep down in our hearts, it's difficult for us to listen to others, to want to submit to authority. We don't want to do those things. Maybe broccoli throwing is not such a big deal, but I think we all know that there are aspects of our lives where it is a big deal when these things come up. So what should we do? Today I want to show you uh, the people of God their rebellion and what they do with their sin. But more importantly, I want to show you what God, I want to show you God and what He does with their sin. We're starting a new series today called Rebuild, Restore, Reform in the Old Testament books of Ezra and Nehemiah today. Um, and as Michael told us before, you know, some of these books might not be as familiar to us, but it's a, they're wonderful books with plenty of fantastic truths that will be really life-changing for us. So let me start by giving you a bit of context with where we're at. Um, this is book comes in the time of uh, the exile here. So we had Jeremiah in the past weeks prophesying the exile of Israel into Babylon because of their sin. So this is a time where uh, the, God's people are in exile, 
but actually this time of their return. Because what happens is the Persian Empire actually come in, they take over from the Babylonians, they defeat them, now Israel under Persia, another empire, King Cyrus of Persia decides to send some of the Jews back home to start rebuilding, some rebuilding work in their city. Uh, Ezra, he's a teacher of the law, he returns home to help restore worship, rebuild the temple, help restore the worship practices. And Nehemiah, he's a cupbearer to uh, the king, king Artaxerxes, a Persian king. He returns to rebuild the walls. And this is a story of those men and the events happening there. There's a lot of opposition along the way as that happens. And the big questions of the book actually are this. Can God's people rebuild after the exile? Can they reform their heart issues that led them to them being exiled in the first place? And if not, where can they look for restoration? That's the big questions that this book actually raises up. And today we're going to look at Nehemiah 9 as we start. This actually occurs in the history of the, um, in the timeline of the book. After the walls have been rebuilt, the people have gathered together, they've heard God's law proclaimed, and they reflect on their history. And this chapter will help us to set the scene for the rest of the series as the people reflect. Okay, so keep your Bibles open. We're at our first point, confessing the right way. Have a look at Nehemiah 9 verse 1. Have a look at verse 1 in your Bibles. If you don't have a Bible, then look on with the, your neighbor maybe or listen along. On the 24th day of the same month, the Israelites gathered together fasting and wearing sackcloth and putting dust on their heads. This is a sign of mourning. They're really mourning. Um, they're in sadness. Uh, those of Israelite descent had separated themselves from all foreigners. They stood in their places and confessed their sins and the sins of their ancestors. They stood where they were and read from the book of the law of the Lord their God for a quarter of the day and spent another quarter in confession and in worshipping the Lord their God. Now, from this little bit, I just want you to note the order of what happens here in this chapter, the order of things. First comes a quarter day of actually the proclamation of God's Word. Did you, did you see that? Hearing the book of the law. God's Word is a starting point. And then comes a quarter day of confession and worship. God's law, then confession. That's the order. God's law, then confession. Why is this key? Well, I think this is key because God's law, as the people are confronted with them, actually show them their sin. They show the people, the, the law shows the people how far short they fall of God's perfect standards that he has set out for them. One aspect of what the word sin actually means is to miss the mark. It's like, um, have you ever played darts before? I don't know if you, anyone's played darts before. You know how you try and hit the bullseye, but then you can't because it's hard? You miss. Uh, you try and get that bullseye. More often than not, you'll miss. You'll fall short. Sometimes you don't even get the board at all and it bounces off the wall. It's dangerous. Maybe that's just me, yeah. But God gives us a target to aim for. His perfect, holy standards. He outlines that in His law for His people. But unfortunately, we fall so far short. So far short. And here, God's people, as they gather together, they realize this as the law is read out to them. They realize this is what we're supposed to be doing. We aren't doing this. They're so convicted to, of their um, shortcomings that they confess. It leads to confession. But the second thing I want to point out is this is not just confession. Did you notice that? Did you see what it said? It is confession and worship of their Lord, their God. That's what verse 3 says. Confession and worship. And that's a bit surprising, isn't it? When you think about confessing sin, and you can see they've got ash on their hair, their sackcloth, they're weeping and mourning. You don't normally couple that with worship as well, right? Confession and worship. But I love that this is laid out so clearly here. Because I've realized something as I've read through this chapter, which we'll see. Confession without worship is crushing. 
Confession of sin by itself leads to self-loathing, discouragement, depression, but with worship, it leads to joy, hope, life. Well, what do I mean here? We'll see this pattern work out through the confession prayer. And in fact, we'll see the exaltation of who God is. Worship is actually the starting point. Here's our next point. Immense sin, immense mercy. Skip forward to verse 5 with me, second half of verse 5 in your Bibles. Have a look. It says this. This is the Levites, the tribal priests, and they're saying this. Stand up and praise the Lord your God, who is from everlasting to everlasting. Blessed be your glorious name, and may it be exalted above all blessing and praise. You alone are the Lord. You made the heavens, even the highest heavens, and all their starry hosts, the earth and all that is on it, the seas and all that is in them. You gave life to everything, and the multitudes of heaven, they worship you. All the people gathered together. And the Levites lead them in this corporate worship, remembering who God is, what God has done, and is entirely centered on God. Their history is centered on God. Um, And let me sum up really quickly what they say. Yeah, I'll go back to the timeline because it'll give you an idea right from the start. This is what the confession is as they cry out. You are Lord. You made the heavens and the earth. You are the Lord who chose Abram and made a covenant promise with him and his offspring. You are the Lord who saw the afflictions of our fathers in Egypt and redeemed them. You freed them with mighty signs. You divided the Red Sea. You are the Lord who led them through the wilderness by a pillar of cloud and fire. You are the Lord who gave them the good law at Mount Sinai. You are the the Lord who gave them bread from heaven and water from a rock and sustained them. You are the Lord. And as Israel retells, their history to one another. They see crystal clear something that's really important, that it all starts with God's grace. It all starts with God's grace. What do I mean by that? If you, if you go to work, right, um, and you get paid, that's not grace. You, you deserve that. You earned that. There'll be an issue if you got nothing. But what about if you just imagine that if you're sitting around one day, maybe you're at Macca's sitting around one day and some stranger comes up to you and just gives you $100 for free. Now, likely it's just some YouTube influencer trying to make a video, but don't worry about that. Just ignore that aspect. But if someone tries to just give you $100 for free and you're just sitting around doing nothing, you did nothing to deserve that. It's a little picture of grace, an undeserved gift. This is the definition of grace. Grace is an undeserved gift. And what Israel realizes as they start is that everything that they have is an undeserved gift, even their own creation, everything. When the Israelites sing out their confession together, they remind one another, who are we that God would bless us and give us so much? That he would create us, that he would save us from Egypt, that he will sustain us. Who are we that God is so gracious to give us so much? That's where the confession starts, acknowledging, realizing how much grace that they've been shown, which makes what happens next all the more tragic. I want you to skip forward to verse 16 with me. Have a look in your Bibles. Verse 16, Nehemiah 9, verse 16. But they, our ancestors, became arrogant and stiff-necked, and they did not obey your commands. They refused to listen and failed to remember the miracles you performed among them. They became stiff-necked and in their rebellion appointed a leader in order to return to their slavery. Despite the overflowing grace of God, the people rebelled in the wilderness. Note the words that's used to describe them. 
They refused to listen. They were stiff-necked, means stubborn, proud, rebellion. This is what characterized God's people. Strong words describing hard hearts, unwilling to change. This is the root of all sin. And as you read the history of Israel, it's actually mind-boggling. God literally, what does he do for them? He literally parts a sea for them. He makes a way for them. But it's not long before they start complaining. They say, man, where's the food? Can you please take us back to Israel? I mean, to, to Egypt? We had better food there. Take us back. Make us slaves again. Come on. It's better to be slaves than to die in the wilderness. Literally, right after God's mightily saves them. That's the sort of people they are. What incredible ingratitude. What incredible sin. And here we see human sin in all its ugly glory. But how does God respond? It's time to switch the spotlight back to God. And here's something even more incredible. Have a look at verse 17 with me. Verse 17 in your Bibles. But you are a forgiving God, gracious and compassionate, slow to anger, abounding in love. Therefore, you did not desert them. Even when they cast on themselves an image of a calf and said, this is your God who brought you up out of Egypt, or when they committed awful blasphemies. Because of your great compassion, you did not abandon them in the wilderness. By day, the pillar of cloud did not fail to guide them in their path, nor the pillar of fire by night to shine on the way they were, ought to, they were to take. You gave your good spirit to instruct them. You did not withhold your manna from their mouths, and you gave them water for their thirst. For 40 years you sustained them in the wilderness. They lacked nothing. Their clothes did not wear out, nor did their feet become swollen. These people made a statue of a golden cow, and they started worshipping it and said, this is our God. This is our God. Come on. Are you serious? But what does God do? He cares, he protects, and he provides for them for 40 years in the face of that sin. Why on earth would God do this? Well, it's because of verse 17. Did you notice that verse? This is a very important verse. But you are a forgiving God, gracious and compassionate, slow to anger and abounding in love. I said before that grace is like someone random giving you $100 for no reason. But how about this? How about someone that you've hurt? How about someone that you've disgraced? Someone that has always loved you and sacrificed and given everything for you, but you've slapped them across the face and said, get out of my life. I don't need you anymore. Someone who has every right to hurt you back, but who doesn't do that, who shows you mercy. And instead, gives you not just $100, but everything they own, everything. Not because you deserve it, but purely because this is who they are. This is a tiny reflection of what God is like to us. And here the Israelites, they remember this anew. He is a forgiving God, gracious and compassionate, slow to anger and abounding in love. The confession continues, focused on who God is. And it keeps retelling the history of Israel, right? It keeps going, yeah? So it's about the promised land now, the exodus and the promised land. You, Lord, gave our ancestors the promised land. Verse 22, it starts. You multiplied their children. Um, you subdued the enemies 
for our ancestors. You gave them abundant blessings. And here we see God's grace again highlighted after their sin. God's grace, human sin. God's grace, human sin. This cycle keeps going. But unfortunately, the cycle doesn't stop with God's grace. Human sin comes straight after. Have a look at verse 26 with me. But they were disobedient and rebelled against you. They turned their backs on your law. They killed your prophets who had warned them in order to turn them back to you. They committed awful blasphemies. You think that after God showed them more grace, that they'll get better, but they just got worse and worse. They literally murdered the prophets that God sent to them. So God had to punish them for this. But read what happens next, verse 27. So you delivered them into the hands of their enemies who oppressed them. But when they were oppressed, they cried out to you. From heaven you heard them, and in your great compassion you gave them deliverers. You rescued them from the hand of their enemies. And the cycle continues. God, in his great compassion, sends deliverers in the form of judges, Gideon, Samson, and rescues them again. God's grace is shown to them again. Okay, surely now Israel, they'll realize what they need to do. They'll obey, they'll listen. No, literally the next verse, verse 28. But as soon as they were at rest, they again did what was evil in your sight. But God once again shows them grace. Then you, then you bend them to the hand of the enemy so that they, you, they ruled over them. And then they cried out to you again. You heard them from heaven and in your compassion, you delivered them time after time. Okay, surely now, Israel, they've got it, they've got it, okay, this must be it. No, verse 29, you warned them in order to turn them back to your law, but they became arrogant and disobeyed your commands. They sinned against your ordinances, of which they said, the person who obeys them will live by. Stubbornly, they turned their backs on you, became stiff-necked and refused to listen. You see this history of Israel that's retold, it's just cycles of sin and God showing forgiveness. It's sin and God's grace, sin and God's grace, sin and God's grace. It makes you want to cry, doesn't it? When you see Israel and what, what are they doing? How can Israel keep going back to their sinful ways? You know, maybe it was fun for a while, but it wasn't exactly a great way to live. They kept getting punished for it, rightfully so. How can this people of God be so unappreciative of the forgiveness and grace shown to them? This isn't second chance we've been talking, we're talking about here. This is third, fourth, fifth, sixth chance over and over. It's like a wife who keeps cheating on her husband over and over and over and over and over again. And even after being forgiven, each time keeps going back to the sin. This is a deeply depressing picture. And I think Israel is supposed to feel that as they read it. I think as you get this picture, I want you to imagine what's happening here. All the Levites, all the priests, the tribes of priests, they're, they're standing on this staircase in front of a big courtyard full of the entire nation that's come back, right? And they're reading this. And the people are weeping right now. They're hearing their history and they're, they're thinking, what have we done? How could we have done this? What's wrong with it? What sort of people are we? It brings tears. But there's another reason that you want to cry here as well. Because as we've seen in the story, as sin abounds, grace abounds even more. Have a look at verse 30 with me. Have a look at verse 30 in your Bibles with me. For many years you were patient with them, 
By your spirit, you warned them through your prophets, yet they paid no attention. So you gave them into the hands of their neighboring people. But in your great mercy, you did not put an end to them or abandon them, for you are gracious and merciful God. You are gracious and merciful God. How could Israel keep sinning in such a horrific way? But more importantly, how could God keep showing them such incredible forgiveness? I don't know about you, but every time I read about Israel in the wilderness and all the stuff they did, uh, I think to myself, if I was God, I would have given up on these guys a long time ago. I would have been so fed up. These unfaithful, rebellious, unappreciative people so long ago, I would have just given up. But thankfully, God isn't like me. He's a gracious and merciful God. I can only imagine how Israel are feeling as they speak about their history, their retelling it. I imagine it would be an emotional roller coaster for them, weeping with sorrow as they realize, realize how much they've dishonored God and sinned terribly against Him over and over again, and weeping with joy at the fact that God still hasn't abandoned them, that He's still with them, even though they completely don't deserve it. Perhaps a big emotion here would be confusion. Why? It doesn't make sense. Why is God still sticking by us? And the only answer to the question is this. This is who God is. This is who God is. Friends, we need to remember this. We are more sinful than we could ever imagine. But God is more gracious than we could ever hope for. We are more sinful than we could ever imagine. But God is more gracious than we could ever hope for. And let me tell you, it is only when you understand this that you will come and confess your sins to God and you will find real joy. Do you see the importance of confession combined with worship, confession and worship? Seeing your sin has to go hand in hand with seeing your God. Let me put it this way. If you think God is an evil, petty, malicious God just waiting to punish you, waiting to get you in trouble, you won't come to him with your sins, will you? Why would you? You'll hide them away. You'll stay away from him. Like a teenager who's done the wrong thing but knows the only response from their parents is just going to be punishment, extreme anger. You're going to hide that sin. You're going to hide it away. But if you see God for who he really is, you will come to him. Because who is God? Nehemiah 9. Let me, let me list out the words Nehemiah 9 says in this chapter. God is... Patient, compassionate, forgiving, merciful, righteous, good, gracious, abounding in love. If you see God for who he truly is, then and only then will you come to him, sins and all. Do you see why Israel confesses and worships, these two things need to go hand in hand because only then will they have hope. And they need that hope. The end of Nehemiah 9 ends with them asking God for help. God, please help us. We're in a hard situation. We're in great distress. That's the last word in verse 37. The situation for Israel is that they're still under judgment for their disobedience. The Babylonians have exiled them the Persians have now taken over. They're, they're the new masters. They're, now spoke, they're trying to rebuild, but it's so far from the glory that they're destined for. And Nehemiah 9 ends with them asking for help. A good, 
an appropriate way to end a confession, realizing how much help you need. And they rededicate themselves to follow God's law in the next chapter. This is good. This is what God desires. And we'll look at the future weeks, in the future weeks, how this goes. But do they have any hope of real restoration? What will stop them just sinning again like in the past and once again falling into this judgment? Well, let's bring it home and think about what this means for us as we just think about our application, our final part. We've taken a whirlwind journey through Israel's story, a very quick journey. I wonder, friends, what your story is. Is, If you're anything like me, your story is one of a lost child trying to find significance, joy, assurance in anything and everyone except for God. My story is one of caring more about what people think than what God thinks. My story is one of seeking pleasure in partying and drinking rather than in my Lord. My story is one of pride, lust, lies, and greed. Not just once, but like Israel, over and over and over and over and over again. Even after I became a Christian and I tried my hardest, I kept going back to sin over and over again. I, don't, I couldn't beat it. I wonder if you resonate with my story. I wonder if that's your story too. But friends, the good news is that my story speaks, into my story speaks an even greater story, a story that we are all invited into. And that is the story of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. I mentioned before that Israel couldn't hit the mark. They couldn't follow God's perfect standards. The law showed them the good way to live, but because of their sin, it became the very thing that condemned them. They could not keep the law, and neither can we. I think we all know that. We're so far short of what we should be. Because sin lives in us. Our story's the same as Israel, trying to obey by failing over and over again. If it was up to us to perfectly obey God's law for salvation, we would have no hope, absolutely no hope. But thanks be to God that the hope that we have is not in us, but it is in Jesus Christ. One of my favorite verses is Romans 5. Verse 6 to 8. You see, at just the right time, when we were still powerless, Christ died for the ungodly. Very rarely will someone die for a righteous person, though for a good person someone might possibly dare to die. But God demonstrates his own love for us in this. While we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Our God has always been full of compassion, love, mercy, and grace as we've seen in Israel's history, but nowhere do we see this more than in Jesus Christ, where Jesus on the cross, the only, Jesus, the only, think about this, the only one who obeys the law perfectly, the only one who is utterly righteous, the only one who doesn't deserve punishment, he goes and dies in our place so that we can be forgiven. Not when we were lovely, not when we were obedient, not when we were good, But did you see what verse 8 says? While we were still sinners, Christ died for us. While we were at our very worst. I didn't deserve this. You didn't deserve this. But that's the whole point. Because this is grace. An undeserved gift. Friends, you need to realize that Jesus is not waiting to beat you down when you come to him with all your sins and your mistakes and failings to try and catch you out when you've done wrong to go aha uh-huh, I knew you weren't a good person 
He's waiting for you to come to him. He's weeping at your sin because he wants to help. His heart is gentle and lowly. That's how he describes himself, and he wants to show you grace. Remember, we are more sinful than we could ever imagine, but God is more gracious than we could ever hope for. Friends, this series is called Rebuild, Restore, Reform. It's about the nation of Israel's story, but for us personally, for us corporately as a church, we're all on journeys of restoration, aren't we? We all want to change. We don't want to sin. We want to please God. Let me tell you something. It starts and finishes with the grace of God, okay? It starts and finishes with the grace of Jesus Christ alone, nothing else. So can I encourage you to adopt the pattern of Israel in your life, confession, and worship. I'm not good at this, um, confessing my sins to God. I downplay so often. But can I encourage you, maybe once a week even, just come before God and confess your sins. Be honest. Speak from your heart. Tell Him your struggles. Tell Him about how you flew off your handle again at the kids. You lost your temper. Tell Him about the hurtful things you said to your husband your wife, your friends, your family. Tell them about that secret, secret struggle or sexual sin that one no, no one knows about. Tell them about that pride and greed that's growing in your heart each day as you get more and more successful. Tell, tell to him, bring it before him. Tell me, trust me, it's not a secret. It's not a surprise to him. He knows. But like a loving father to his children, he wants you to talk to him about these things. He wants you to bring them to him. Confess. And let it propel you even deep into God's grace. Because you, when you realize the depths of your sin, then you'll see even more the depths of God's grace as he forgives you for those things. Let it propel you to see who God is, to worship, worship him. See anew the God you have. Merciful, loving, patient, kind, compassionate, gracious. And rejoice knowing that in Christ you are forgiven. Not just once, but forevermore. We are more sinful than we could ever imagine, but God is more gracious than we could ever hope for. Let me pray. Father God, we thank you and we give you praise that despite our sin, despite our story being the story of Israel, of sin over and over and over again, of disobedience, that our story also is a story of your grace where you hold out your forgiveness over and over and over again, and that you will not abandon us. We thank you for your forgiveness in the cross. We are sorry for when we don't appreciate that. And may we bring our sins before you with assurance that we have forgiveness, not because of who we are, but because of what Christ has done. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Friends, we're going to remember this